Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is part two of our series called Jesus Is. We did this series about four years ago, but again, I could talk about Jesus every week if I wanted to. And so we just thought we had this little gap of time here as we build up to Easter. I just wanted to revisit this idea. And I had about eight different new sermons that I wanted to do, but I can't do all eight because, well, at some point you have to change gears or y'all get bored. And so do I lose. I get spiritual ADD. So I just, just do this. And so, uh, but we are in part two of our Jesus Is series. Now, last week, how many of you were here last week? Raise your hands real quick here. Last week, I did you guys a terrible disservice, at least you OCD people. Um, what I did was, and you need, if you weren't here last week, you need to go watch the message because it's an incredible message. If you ever wanted to know who is God and why does that matter to me, that might be the most important sermon that you ever hear. But what I did was, is I worked through an idea and a concept and then told you why it was so important. But I realized that this series is called Jesus Is and there's a blank. And I never gave you, Christy, it bothered you, didn't it? it I never gave you a Jesus Is whatever. And so I'm going to give it to you. You ready? I'm, so I'm going to set you free. You've been in anxiety all week long. You know what I mean? So you're like, this is it. You ready? Jesus is connected. Jesus is connected. That Jesus did not come here completely on his own, but he was a part of something bigger than himself. And he was a part of something that theologians look at as the divine dance and the divine flow. And you need to go figure out what that is. Go watch last week's message. But now you can sleep easier at night. I know some of y'all lost sleep over that because you're so weird. And so... I love you. So, but to, so today, to make sure that I didn't mess it up, I thought I'm not going to save it to the end, although it will be obvious. I'm just going to come right out because today is Palm Sunday. And if you don't know what Palm Sunday is, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to break it down. I will be a little nerdy today. I'll be a little, a little history professor-ish today because there's some really unique parts of history that, that make the Bible become more alive. And so today is the day that we celebrate Jesus's triumphal entry. So this is the way that it works. Today is the Sunday before Easter. And this is the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And they worshiped and they celebrated. There's all these little key details that we're going to come into. But what really Matthew is writing and framing this thing to say is this. I'm writing this whole section just so that you know that Jesus is King, you need to know that's the whole point of this thing. So you know what, um, guys, if you check out and then later your wife is like, hey, what did the pastor talk about? What did he talk about? Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. So now you can, you can literally check out the masters and see if Tiger wins. You can do whatever you want and you'll, you'll be, but you need to dial in though because it's really, really good. So let's read the story because Matthew writes this story on purpose to, to give something to us. It says this, it says, as they approached Jerusalem, And they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey. Everybody say a donkey. That's important. A donkey is tied there with her colt by her. And tie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, (coughs) excuse me, say that the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. He's basically setting the disciples up to steal. It's kind of a funny thing. Hey, look, there's a cult up there. Just grab it. And if anybody says anything, just say it's for Jesus. We'll bring it back later. That's in essence what's going on here. A borrowing. Divine borrowing. So this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And this is what the prophet said. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey 
So the disciples went and did just like Jesus told them to do, because that's what you do. If Jesus tells you to go steal a donkey, you just go do it. So they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a really large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is why we call it Palm Sunday, because they had palm branches. They would cut them down, and they would lay them down on the road. And Jesus comes riding in a donkey, and the donkey is stepping over what? Palm branches. Hence, that's how we get Palm Sunday. So, verse 9 says that the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed, they shouted something. They shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Everybody say stirred. It stirred up. And they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So now here's what's really going on. During this time of year, it was called Passover. And Passover was one of seven feasts, or really three times a year, because they would bunch them together, some of them. There were three times a year where all of these Jews would descend on Jerusalem, right? It was like, like think about 4th of July, New Year's Eve, these big major holidays where everybody shows up to Times Square and then just goes bananas, right? Except this is not New Year's, this is not 4th of July, this is Passover, which in some ways is like a... uh Holy 4th of July, right? It kind of is. Because their Passover was what they used to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt. Thousands of years before. Remember Moses said, let my people go. There was a Passover. That's what this is. They're celebrating Passover. And so if you were a good Jew, you were supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate these feasts. So literally like a couple hundred thousand Jews from the surrounding area would just pour into the city. So there's a stir going on. Now, in addition to that, there's some more stir going on because they were stirred up, right? Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's crazy. So you got to remember like just a couple days before, just outside the city in Bethany, he had just raised a man from the dead. He was already this famous rabbi, this teaching, healing, prophet, rabbi. Everybody's stirred up. Everybody's excited. He just raised a guy from the dead. It's Passover. What could this be the Messiah? Because a lot of them believed that he was. And so they are celebrating this idea. And this is why Matthew's painting this story. Everybody say a donkey. So it sounded like Shrey, like donkey. Um, that movie, that's a funny movie. Anyway, a donkey. Uh, the, the donkey was symbolic and, and it was so purposeful and so meaningful for two reasons. The first one is simply this. This was the fulfillment of prophecy, which is basically a really old guy from a really long time ago telling you something about the future. And there was all these prophecies about Messiah. And so actually this is this is kind of where it comes from. It's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. This is what Matthew quotes. See your king. Everybody say king. See your king. Why is Matthew telling the story this way? Why is he breaking it down this way? Because he's trying to tell you that Jesus actually is the king. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a what? A donkey, on a colt, on a full of a donkey. And so you see that Jesus is, is fulfilling prophecy, that this Messiah, this king, this coming one, this one sent by God, this deliverer, man, when he comes, 
He's coming on a donkey. Now, here's here's why this is also important, and you would have to be a little bit of a historian to know some of this stuff. And so when you go read Josephus and some of the other ancient historians, you start to pick up on unique little details that make the Bible. You ever read the Bible and be like, that's weird. Why do they do that? That makes no sense. Well, this was written 2,000 years ago. So you get... You get nerdy people like me that spend a lot of time studying this stuff and then they give you the goods, right? So this is, this is the goods. The reason why this is so symbolic is because throughout history, whenever a deliverer or a conqueror or a leader or a king were to enter into a city, he had two ways of coming in on a city. And it was either number one on a war horse or number two, it was on a donkey. And if you came on a war horse, you were saying, bless God, I am coming to kick butt and take names. There's a new sheriff in town. This is a new Jack city. That's what they were saying. And so Jesus is saying, I didn't come in on here on a war horse. I came in here because if you came in on a donkey, you were saying, I have come to bring peace or I've come in peace. Now, here's what else is going on. This is nuts. There's a guy that's in the story named Pilate. Everybody say Pilate. Now, they're going to talk about him later, but what you need to know historically is this, is Pilate is the prefect or the governor, if you will, of this area, and he's a bad dude. The Gospels almost paint him like he's not that bad of a dude, but he was a really bad dude. The reason why they don't paint him like a bad dude is because there's a moment where Pilate's like, there's nothing wrong with this guy, I'm not going to kill him. I'll wash my hands of him, and he sounds like a reasonable person. Well, he really wasn't. As a matter of fact, when Rome, like Rome crucified people who were traitors and bad guys, right? When Rome writes to you and tells you that you're too harsh and you're too mean, you're too mean, right? Like if the mean people tell you that you're mean, like, right? You ever had like a, you know, it's like somebody call you out on your junk. Like maybe they were really negative, right? And they were like, yeah, you're being kind of negative. It means so much more to you than when your mom says it to you. Because you're like, wow, if they say that to me, what does that mean, right? So that's that's kind of how Pilate is. He's a mean guy, and a Roman Empire tells him he's mean. And all the writers of history kind of uh, 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 validate this, because he has all these moments in history where he's just cruel. What he did was, this is fascinating, he stole the high priest's garments, or not stole them, he just took them. And he would keep them in his own fortress, up in the fortress Basically, it was named after Anthony, Mark Anthony. But anyway, in that fortress, he used to hold the priestly garments. And what he was saying was this. You'll hold Passover when I tell you you can hold Passover. Uh, you can celebrate Passover when I bring you your little outfits. And then you can celebrate Passover. Like one time, he stole a bunch of money from the temple. So he could build an aqueduct. And he knew that the, that the Jews would riot. Because the Jews were notorious for like rioting. They liked to riot about everything. And so he goes, you know what? They're going to riot. And so you know what I'm going to do? He placed all of his soldiers into the crowd. And then literally when the people started to riot because he stole their money from the temple, he had his troops beat and kill everybody. He's just a nasty, mean. As a matter of fact, this is what another Roman historian said, is that his vindictiveness and furious temper or he had a vindictive and furious temper and was naturally inflexible and a blend of self-will and relentlessness. So that was his, that's what he was known for. Well, every year at Passover, this is what's going on. This is what you wouldn't know without knowing history. Jesus is coming up from the south, riding on a donkey. And on the same day, Pilate is riding in from north on the war horse bringing the priestly garments. And you can see this contrast of these two different leaders. One wants to dominate and be cruel and be harsh and to punish people. And Jesus is coming to redeem and to save and to heal. And so there's this contrast of Jesus, again, walking on a donkey, walking in saying, I'm different. I've come to bring peace. You've got a guy, because this is, and this is why Pilate would do that. 
Again, the Jews were notorious for rioting. So what Pilate was sent there to do, as the mean guy was, keep them crazy people from rioting. That was his number one job. Imagine a couple hundred thousand Jews coming into town to celebrate a holiday where God delivers his people from their oppressors. What would you do if you were Rome? You're like, all right, we got to show up in force. So, so Pilate would show up with thousands and thousands of troop on a war horse to let you know y'all are getting out of line. Y'all are still underneath Roman oppression. And then here you have Jesus doing the opposite saying, no, no, no. I've come to heal, to redeem and to set you free. And he did. He just didn't do it the way that they thought that he would do it. Think, why, why were these people going out, throwing down branches, throwing down clothes, celebrating, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Messiah, the Messiah. Why would they be doing that? Because they wanted Jesus to somehow overthrow their Roman oppressors and put Israel back on the map as this national, you know, uh, great nation again, that kind of a thing. And Jesus doesn't do it. A week later, he dies by Roman crucifixion. But then he rises from the dead three days later and he overthrows the Roman Empire, not by dominating them, by infiltrating them. So you got to remember all of a sudden the gospel begins to spread throughout the book of Acts. The boss, the gospel moves west into the Roman Empire. And just a few hundred years later, Christianity is the state religion because they infiltrated Rome from the inside and they did it with kindness and healing and with love and with serving and with generosity. And Jesus in essence saying, I'm going to change the world but I'll do it riding on a donkey. Can I get an amen? So point number one that Matthew's really trying to make is this, is that is that Matthew's trying to say, the king is here and he's bringing peace. Now let's keep going because there's four big ideas here. That's number one. Next one is this. It's what you see is, is that Jesus um, does something radical in this next story, right? This is all day one, by the way. So he's got a very busy day. His schedule is booked. Watch what happens. Jesus entered the temple courts after he gets into town and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, how did he go from riding on a donkey and I'm going to bring peace to I'm flipping stuff over, Notice the mood changes a little. Boy, Jesus, wait, you were on a donkey a minute ago. I thought this was all about peace. Now you're turning over tables. Well, watch why. So the, he turned over the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Everybody say doves. I'll tell you why that matters in a minute. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Jesus actually takes two Old Testament prophets. Uh, prophets. He takes Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and then smooshes them together, right? So he takes these two quotes lifted from the Old Testament and Jesus is clearly hacked off. Can I get a what, what? Like, cause we're like, we normally it's like Birkenstock Jesus in his robe and he's praying for little children and healing people. Not today. Today he's flipping crap over. You know, like what happened? Why are you so angry? What? It's like he, he skipped breakfast. He's had no coffee. He's just, I'm done. He's hangry. This is what's really going on. And again, if you don't know history, you might be able to like to lose the point of what's going on here. So what Matthew is saying is, is again, he's fulfilling prophecy. But look at what he's doing. Here's what's really going on in the background. There is a current high priest at the time named Caiaphas and his father-in-law is Annas. These two die, these two guys are running the joint, right? Annas was basically the puppet master and he had five sons and Caiaphas was his son-in-law and he was 
was running now as the high priest. But what they were doing was, is that they had really kind of begun to rub elbows with Rome so that they could make lots of money. They had become greedy for money and for power, and they were using the temple to pull it off. Because here's what they were doing. There was a few things that they had going. They had a racket going, right? Where they take advantage of people. The first thing that they did was, is that whenever you came to town, you needed to buy a lamb for your offering. Or if you were poor, you would buy a dove. And here's what they would do. They would basically say, hey, you've got to buy our lambs if you want to be right with God. So they had a monopoly on all the lambs. They had their own thing going, and you had to buy from them. It was almost like going to the baseball game. It's like being in an airport. They got you. They got you. Them little little pack of pretzels, they're not worth $5 at Walmart, but in an airport, they're worth $5, right? You go to the ballpark, and you get a hot dog. That thing's not worth $10. It's worth maybe 50 cents, because it's made out of like, Ground up pig parts. We we don't even know what we're eating. But they're telling us it's $10. Why? Because they own us. They know it's eat our $10 hot dog or fast. You know, that's it, right? Well, that's what they're doing. They're saying, hey, you need a lamb. We got the lambs. We'll charge you whatever we want. And they begin to raise the prices and inflate the prices on the lambs. Now, here's the other thing they had going. How many of you know, if you've ever gone to a different country, you have to exchange your money? So you got to like, okay, got to give you, uh, you know, American dollars and you give me back euros or pesos or yen or whatever. I don't even know if that exists anymore. Anyway, whatever, whatever the world uses, you see, I don't travel a lot. And so what happens though is, is that you, there's an exchange rate, right? Just because I give you this, you can only give me whatever you want back. Because everybody used coinage that had a, uh, a the picture of Caesar on it, the temple said, now you can't use that because that's a graven image and you can't bring that in the temple. So the only way that you can buy our lambs, which we're jacking up the prices on, is that you exchange your money for temple money, and then we'll charge you for that. They, they, I'm telling you what, they got money hand over fist. They are raking everybody. I mean, they're picking everybody's pockets. They're, they're, they're robbing from people, even the doves. The reason why it says doves here is they were just even letting you know too, they're jacking up poor people. Cause like, if you had some money, you bought a lamb. If you were poor, they'd let you buy a dove. They're like, we're charging more for the doves. They even had a guy, check this out. They even had a guy, his name, his name had a title. It was a Mehech. And, um, no, that's real. It's Mehech. I could probably not. It's M-E-M-C-H-E-H. But he was a guy that was the examiner of your lamb. Watch, watch what he is. This is so brilliant. Or horrible. What they would do is, let's say you brought your lamb. I get to examine your lamb. And then I'd be like, no, that's not good enough. So then what I'd do is, is I'd buy your lamb from you at a totally discounted price. I'd offer you pennies on the dollars to get your lamb, and then I'd go resell your lamb. This is cruel. So, 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 do you see why Jesus is angry? He walks into the court of the Gentiles and sees this. And he goes, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And y'all have made it a den of what? Thieves and robbers. He wasn't just saying that. It was actually going on. Caiaphas and Annas and these guys were running a racket on everybody. Let me tell you why I think it made him the most angry. Is not just what they were doing, but even where they were doing it. They were doing it in the court of the Gentiles. Because here's what the, here's what the Old Testament said. And this is again kind of where Jesus is pulling some of these ideas from. This whole, uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Look at where he pulls it from. Now watch this. Isaiah 5 verse, uh, 56 verse 6 says this. And foreigners. That's Gentiles. That's non-Jewish people. 
and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants and all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who will hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For Jews? For all nations. See, the, the Gentiles couldn't go into the innermost parts. That was kept for just the Jews. But the Gentiles had a place where they could come worship too. And Jesus is saying, this is a place where people ought to be able to come and experience God. And y'all are running a racket. And I'm done. And this is Matthew telling you that Jesus again is fulfilling prophecy. But it's also Jesus saying this, or Matthew saying this, that the king has come and he's cleaning house. You just need to know the king is here, the king has come, and he's cleaning house. If there is any type of greed and selfishness in your heart, the king drives that out. All right, third one, ready? We're going to move a little faster here. So, so watch this. The next thing that it says is, it says that in Matthew chapter 21, next verse 14, it says that the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, the children shouting in the temple court saying, Hosanna to the son of, Hosanna to the son of David, they were what? It, that's just fancy mad. That's all that is. They were angry. And again, Matthew is painting this beautiful picture, this wonderful picture to tell you one thing, that Jesus is king. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And he's lifting this one out of the book of Isaiah as well. Isaiah 35, 4, which has, Isaiah has all these prophecies about Messiah. It says, to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then Will the lame leap like a deer? Do you know why they were so mad? They were so mad. The reason why they were so angry is because Jesus is telling you there's a new king. He's the king of kings. He's worthy to be praised. He's clean in house. He's come in peace. But listen, 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 listen. He has come to heal. He has come to restore. But the, remember how the prophecy talks about it. It's like, it's, this is the Lord. This is God who is doing this. And they were so angry. They were so indignant. And ultimately, see, this goes back to why they killed Jesus. If you under, if you ever get a glimpse, why did they kill Jesus? Well, it's simple. He uprooted their power structure. Who is it that had Jesus crucified? Who is it that put together this fake mob to have Jesus crucified? It was all the chief priests and the religious leaders. Why? Because he's stealing, he's, these guys are stealing money and Jesus is coming and uprooting their power structure. He's destroying their power structure. He's calling them out on all their greed and wickedness and hypocrisy. And then even in light of it, he's saying, and by the way, I'm God. And it made them crazy. Because what happens when you take incredibly greedy and selfish, powerful people and you begin to take away <laughs> their ability to maintain power and maintain money? They get angry. And what happens when you take religious people and say, you're wrong and I am the Messiah, I am the Lord? They get angry. But this is what's really going on here is that Jesus is definitely declaring by, by quoting and Matthew quoting this scripture and by them talking this way, he's saying this, the king is here and he has the power to heal. 
You need to know that, that Jesus is in the healing business. That's what he does. And I'm talking about healing hearts and minds. I'm talking about healing people's souls. I'm talking about healing you from your past. And Jesus is definitely healing people, even in their physical ailments. Jesus is a healer. Last one. Are you ready? We're going to wrap here. So the last one says this, Matthew chapter 21, very next verse 16. It says, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. And he's like, well, duh, of course. And then he flips it on them because these are the religious leaders. They're supposed to know the Bible. So he says, well, of course, duh. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth praise. And again, this whole book of Matthew is Matthew writing to a bunch of Jewish people trying to get you to see Jesus is the Messiah. So he has all these Jewish shadows and hiddenness and prophecies and fulfillment and all this stuff. And he does it again out of Psalms 118. He pulls this idea and says, Jesus is this. And this is his way of ultimately saying, hey, the king is here and he is worthy of praise. The king is here and he's worthy of praise. These people that have laid down palm branches and their coats and now the kids are coming out. And again, this it's, he's just fulfilling scripture. This is Psalms chapter eight. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength. So again, Jesus is fulfilling all of these prophecies on Palm Sunday. And Matthew's trying to get you to see so clearly that Jesus is the King. The King has come. He's come riding on a donkey. He's come to bring peace. He's not going to declare war and fight and throw for throw and be violent. No, no, no. But he will clean God's house. He will purge God's house of greed and selfishness. And then he's going to actually heal people. And then you're going to see he is, we sang it earlier today, he actually is worthy of our praise. He is the Lord. He is God. He is the king. Now, I'll close here with this. Because you're like, Todd, okay, that was a great Bible study. I think I learned a few things about history. But what does that actually mean? And it's simply this. In our current American culture, we don't have kings. We have presidents. And half of the country hates the president at any given moment in time. And every president that we have, typically at least a third of the country wants him impeached. And then half of the country is trying to vote him out every four years. And this is the way we look at kings and leaders and that type of thing. It's not how they looked at kings. See, we have this thing where we think about, well, I have rights. Not, not in a kingdom. Well, I demand. Well, not, not in a kingdom you don't. No, no, no. In a kingdom, you see the king as the supreme authority. He has the final say over everything in your life. And you and I, by default, being Americans, don't typically look to Jesus as our king. We might look to him as our friend, and that's powerful. And Jesus wants to be your friend. There's a whole understanding of Jesus wanting to be in incredible relationship with you and be in a friendship with you, and that's powerful. But that's not what that is. And many of us want Jesus to be our savior because either the uh, the hope of heaven or the fear of eternity or the fear of what happens when you die, that's a compelling thing. I really want Jesus to be my savior. Some of you know that you want Jesus to be your healer. When you are desperate and in pain in your physical body, you will pray and you will cry out to God. But I mean, a king, I like a president. I don't have to do what they say. I don't even have to like them. Maybe I vote for them. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I'm definitely voting for them next time around or voting them out next time around. It, it, that's not what Jesus is. 
He is a king. God established him as a king. His word is final and his authority is absolute. So if Jesus really is the king, you know, we have this thing in the New Testament where we say Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the king of kings. By the way, they just, they lifted that. That wasn't a Jesus thing. Like you had different emperors. Like in the Roman Empire, what they would do is, is they had all these, this pantheon of Greek gods and they'd build a statue where you go worship this and such God for whatever they did. But then on the top of it, the Roman emperor would put a statue of himself and then write king of kings. Because it was Rome saying, no, no, you got all these gods and I'm higher than them. And all of a sudden, these apostles, these fishermen, these tax collectors, they see a risen Jesus and they're like, nope, you have not met the king of kings. Because there is one that reigns above you all. He has conquered sin and death and hell and the grave and he conquered it all. He is the king of kings. My question would you, it would, for you would be simply this. Is Jesus just friend, teacher, advisor, savior? That's all good. Is he king? Or we could say it like this if you're taking notes. What would be different in my life if I gave Jesus the final say? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? See, I know how you are because I struggle with the same stuff you struggle with. Jesus, I like your advice. Jesus, I like your counsel. Jesus, I like your wisdom. Jesus, I like your love. Jesus, I like your friendship. I'm down with all that stuff. But you know what? Is Jesus really the king over your moral decisions? Does he have the final say over your business? Is his, is his authority supreme in your marriage? Like, do you surrender to Jesus as the king of kings in every aspect of your life? I know you like Jesus as savior and friend. I know you love the wisdom of Jesus when you so choose to follow it. But what I'm saying is, is that there is a different level to walking and following Jesus. And I believe it is at its most powerful when you surrender to Jesus as not just the king, but as the king of kings, his word is final, his authority is absolute, and he reigns over every aspect of your life. What would your life look like if you actually surrendered to Jesus? What would you change? What would you maybe need to give up? What would you need to start doing? Maybe there's some like habits. Maybe there's some relationships. Maybe there's a tone at the top of your voice. I don't know what it is for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that would you please guide these people? God, would you please reveal? Would you please convict and show and lead and guide? And guide us into a place where Jesus is not just Savior, but God, he is King. Lord, we pray this in your holy name. And we all said, amen. Can you give Lord a big hand clap this morning?